Breaking It Down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. I'd like to welcome everyone to Breaking It Down. Frank McKay here with the, uh, the wonderful Jim Messina, uh, songwriter, guitarist, vocalist, and you know his work from Buffalo Springfield, Poco, and of course Loggins and Messina, and, and so much solo work over the years. Uh, Jim Messina, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, let me, uh, if you don't mind, maybe we could start from the beginning and, and get a little bit of your history. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Well, let's see, I was born in California, and I was raised between uh, South Texas and uh, Southern California growing up. Um, I was pretty much exposed to the kinds of music that were happening back in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, you know, on my father's side, he was really into Western Swing, Spade Cooley, Bob Wills, the Texas Playboys, uh, Merle Travis, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, guitar players like that. And uh, my mother's side, she was more um, into, uh, you know, the Elvis Presleys and the Ricky Nelsons and the, the so-called race music in those days, which was really rhythm and blues. She loved that and uh, kind of turned me on to stuff growing up. So I had a good you know, I had a good cross-section of, of music coming at me, and uh, uh, it was very helpful in the growing, that would help me later in life in the in the musical growing period of my life. So um, um, that that's kind of how I, I got influenced by music. And then by the time I was yeah, probably in the seventh grade, eighth grade, my parents decided to move to, um, to Colton, California, which was between San Bernardino and Riverside. I was about 13 years old. I was 12, turning 13, and big bummer because I was in the around all the beach kids and the surf music, mm-hmm. and it was like, wow, I was moving to the Inland Empire where it was the future farmers of America suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I kind of got depressed, and but that summer I, I met uh, a neighbor whose uh, son was a saxophone player and another guy, Larry Walker, who was a drummer, and he had a brother who played piano and I played guitar and we started a little combo and uh, we played at the local country club which was really in Grand Terrace and it was kind of a hangout for all of the uh, the Air Force guys you know that uh, yeah. that uh, lived in that area and you know Air Force guys you know kind of like the Irish folks they, they love to to have their uh, whiskeys and their <laughs> drinks and stuff so yeah. And cocktails. So they would, while they were having their cocktails and God knows what else up there in the restaurant, they sent their kids down to the pool house where my friends entertained them playing music. And we, you know, we played everything from the Ventures to the Torques to, uh, you know, what I say, whatever. You know, we were just playing and trying to figure it all out. And that's kind of where I actually started playing in bands. And from that point on, I had a, had a band in high school every every to the point in time where I graduated. So we originally started out as uh, the Pendletons, which that was kind of a surf influence with our Pendletons and Converse tennis shoes, Towncraft t-shirts and Levi's, and uh, kind of moved up to something called the Boutonnieres, which we, then we had kind of some jackets on, some carnations, and then eventually the Jesters, which was kind of a surf band uh thing that I did as when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And then about that time, I uh, 
started, I got discovered by a, a DJ, of all people, Glenn Edwards, who um, who was a, a DJ at K, KEZY radio uh, station at the Disneyland Hotel, and he had, I don't know how he saw me or discovered me, but he, he hired me in my senior year to work as a producer uh, in Hollywood, making uh, and arranging records for some of his artists, which got, is what got me started in production. And while I was there, uh, the engineer was a gentleman by the name of Mike DeRoe, and um, the studio was owned by uh, Bob Hudson uh, Emperor Productions, which he later became Hudson and Lambert, I think is the, mm. the deal. But at the time, he was the number one DJ KRLA in L.A., had a cool studio, and uh, that's where I got my, my early start in, in production and in the studio, around radio, uh, and uh, with Mike DeRoe, uh, who, as a side note, we were very, very, very poor in those days, and uh, as a side note, he went on to design DeRoe Electronics, and to this day, the multimillionaire. Wow. Design, designing yeah. compressors and uh, meters for the for the radio industry, but... Anyway, he and I worked together, and after after I graduated high school, that record company went kaputs, and um, and I, I had just seen so many musicians in Hollywood, you know, the Hal Blaine's, the Earl Palmer's, and Lyle Ritz, Carol King, you know, and the, just the great guitar players that time, James Burton, Keith Allison, um, even Glenn Campbell was a session player. They were so great, I just thought, you know, I'm never going to have a chance, so... I decided instead to take an apprenticeship and um, become a, a recording engineer. Started out uh, building uh, studios with Mike, you know, wiring patch bays, you know, putting in preamps and line amps and, and uh, racks and uh, laying on laying on my back, soldering, trying not to get it in my eyes. <laughs> and so, and then from there, you know, Michael taught me how to do some second engineering and some mixing and we spent a lot of time at the board and eventually I needed a job and he helped get me jobs from I think I worked uh, at Audio Arts at one point in time um, which was owned by Madeline Baker she was Jimmy Webb's uh, publisher at the time had a studio and I worked there and then Michael and I built a studio for some folks from Texas uh, Universal Audio and it turned out that was my greatest um my greatest experience there because after we built the studio, we found out that Sonny Jones and Al Jones, who were two musicians, were the brother of the of a woman who was uh, married to, to Hank Williams and then later to Johnny Horton. And uh, they were all from Shreveport, Louisiana, which is where James Burton and Joe Osborne came from. And you would know those musicians if you watched the Ricky Nelson show back in those days because they were the guys playing on TV, and um, and suddenly, you know, all of these folks, Burton, uh, uh, Osborne, Keith Allison, Jerry Allison of the Crickets, and Dorsey Burnett, Roger Miller, all these folks were showing up at the studio. They were all friends of theirs and cutting demos, and I was just, uh, let's just say I was a pig in mud. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good. Well, hey, I mean, I never... I never saw so many great players. If you don't mind, let me introduce or reintroduce to the folks that are just tuning in or just turning on their radios. Frank McKay here with the great Jim Messina. 
and getting a, a history lesson here. You know his work, of course, from Buffalo Springfield and, and Poco and Loggins and Messina and so much more. Uh, legendary career. And I, you know, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. I mean, I'm I'm riveted. And I, it's it's interesting. You said Jimmy Webb. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that there was a connection there necessarily between uh, you and Webb. But um, is that when you started... It, when you started meeting the Jimmy Webbs of the world, and uh, did you did you start thinking more about songwriting at that point, or were you still thinking? Well, not production? really. I, I, I met Jimmy Webb when I was still in high school. His uh, his father was a was a minister, and he was one grade ahead of me. And I bought my first car from Jimmy Webb's dad, oh, and wow. uh, it was a cool car. It was a 1948 Chevy that had been spray painted with spray cans white, <laughs> and uh, it was only seventy five bucks. And uh, I thought it was a real deal. And then later, when Jimmy Webb, you know, he graduated before I, I did. But later on in life, a uh, number of years later, I uh, I married a woman by the name of um, Jenny Sullivan. And uh, her father was Barry Sullivan, the actor. And it was Jimmy Webb's father who actually married us. Wow. And then um, Jimmy Webb later married uh, my wife's sister, Patsy. So we, we knew each other in high school. Um, I was not necessarily a songwriter during the days that he was. I was more of a musician at that time and, and a ranger. Uh, but our lives came together, and, and we still speak. Uh, but no, that's not when it all started for me. My songwriting, uh, well, you know, taking you back, you know, you wanted some chronology here, uh, taking you back to uh, Universal Audio and James Burton, Osborne, all those folks, it was from that group of people that I really started getting my sense of self and loving rock and roll, but loving country, but loving what would later become country rock, which I kind of ter interpreted as rockabilly back in those days. Yeah. Uh, it all sort of worked. It was the blues. It was country. It was everything I grew up with living in Texas and in California as a young man. It started all shape. So by the time I started working in the studios like Sunset Sound Recorders, which is where I met the Buffalo Springfield, I had already produced records and I had already actually had some local hits producing other acts. So as I started my career as an engineer at Sunset Sound, it was really because I needed to eat. And uh, I was good at this thanks to Mike DeRoe as an engineer. So when the Buffalo Springfield came in... Um, it, uh, that was probably the first time in my life that I really saw people my own age or close to it making their own music, and it was very inspiring uh, to see happen, especially Stephen Stills. I mean, I, I remember working as an engineer hearing Bluebird, but I didn't make the connection with the Buffalo Springfield at all because, I, I mean, when you're working, you know, from 9, 10 in the morning until, you know, 2, 3 in in the evening and then doing that all over and over again you very have i had very little time to socialize or, or listen to music other than what was on the radio so i was quite surprised when they came in and i was going through helping you know create that second album um seeing that song uh, hearing that song and going wow this is the group that did that song <laughs> i like it <laughs> yeah just i i mean an amazing uh, you know, amount of people that you touch there. It, it's it, it blows me away that you have such a, a close tie 
to uh, to Jimmy Webb, and I didn't realize it went back to high school. I mean, that's got to be yeah. a proud high school there. I mean, producing a Jim Messina and and a Jimmy Webb. I mean, that's I, I mean they have have to have a little Hall of Fame set up over there. I I you know I never know how things like that happen. It's just. Uh, for for whatever reason, I mean, uh, you have these places where uh, they produce, and it wasn't like it was a, a huge high school, from what it sounds like. Uh, actually, before you respond, let me remind people once again: Jim Messina is our very special guest, and you know his uh, great work from Loggins and Messina, um, solo work all over the place, Buffalo, Springfield, Poco, and and one of the creators of uh, of, of country rock, and um, so much went into that Frank McKay here with Jim Messina. But uh, respond to that if you if you would. I mean, uh, was it a large well, I, I, I don't know what they ha- I don't know what they have set up. I do know that both Jimmy and I had the same music teacher which he didn't like me that much and I don't think he liked Jimmy that much. I think we our music really developed from outside of school. We didn't get a lot of support uh, with music in school. And so um you know, and and again Playing in bands uh, all through high school outside of the school was what really made it work for me and my friends. We, you know, we supported one another with our love for music and our, and our, you know, our, our uh, high school pals. You know, would show up to our shows at the CYOs or the school dance or something like that. Then, uh, <laughs> in fact, I remember my last day of school. I had a, I had an art teacher named Mr. Laplante, and it was my last day of school. And he's standing in front of the stage. Like, I don't know why, like guarding the stage. I don't know, maybe they told him to guard the stage, but <laughs> he's standing in front of the stage in front of my amp, and he turns around and goes, turn it down, turn it down, for Christ's sakes, turn it down. And he turns around, and I looked at Ron, and he says, you know, we've graduated, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, <laughs> we have. I had reached over there and turned it up and just kept playing, having a good time. But we didn't get much, we didn't get much out of school. Um, it was our friends, and... Um, and our parents that really helped us uh, get along. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, your you folks, um, the idea that uh, that you're going into music, but I, I would imagine the fact that you, you had some different uh, feels in music. You weren't saying, look, I'm going to become a rock star from from the get-go. You, I, I'm, I'm getting into production. I'm getting into engineering. I'm, you know, I'm learning how to do this. I, so there was, a, there was a whole bunch of, I, I don't know, fallback positions Almost, and I wasn't aware of that either. I think it's fascinating. At what point are you thinking, um, uh, as as being an artist and and primarily an artist uh, rather than producer, engineer, and so forth? Well, that's kind of happened after really Loggins and Messina. I uh, when I went into working with the Springfield, I was their I was their engineer first. Then I got a call from Armand Erdogan. Um, that they needed a producer, and they they all trusted me and what I consider it. And of course, I was honored and flabbergasted because it came about eleven o'clock at night my time, wow. ten or eleven. So it had to be one or two for him. Um, I accepted the job, and then after that, they lost Bruce Palmer, their bass player. Now, while I had been working in the studios and building studios, Joe Osborne, uh, who was one of the Wrecking Crew. You know, he was constantly working and wanted a studio so he could do stuff at home. So Mike and I built him a place. And in exchange uh, for doing that, I asked him if he would teach me, you know, how to play bass, you know, how to get around on it and what were good tones and style. And so he did. So by the time the opportunity came out, which was a year or so, two years later, 
the Buffalo Springfield needed a bass player, they held an audition, and I asked if I could also audition, which they were surprised to hear that, but said, sure. So they went through their auditions with 10, 12 people, and finally they asked if there was anybody else, and I raised my hand, and I said, yeah, I would. They went, oh, yeah, Jimmy, (laughs) the engineer, right? So anyway, I got up, and I played, and after about 8, 10, 12 bars, Stephen looked over at me at the first song, and he goes, wow. You know, I mean, I had it nailed because I had listened to their stuff for the last year or so, and uh, why why wouldn't I, you know, if you're paying attention? So they hired me right off to be the bass player, and so now I'm their engineer, producer, and bass player. So my job really was to produce the Buffalo Springfield. My second job really was to play bass when we were on the road or in the studio, but primarily there for a long time, I was still being, I was still on payroll, you know, for Sunset Sound, which was, you know, maybe 250 bucks a week. Hmm. But um, by the time we started to, to work with Poco, they needed me there full time. And suddenly I went from 250 to 550. Man, I'm, I'm living the life. <laughs> yeah. my, my pay scale just doubled. <laughs> so... Um, that was great. You know, suddenly I'm 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 performing with them. I'm producing them, and and uh, but then suddenly they they disbanded, and uh, for all the reasons I'm sure you've read about. Yeah. Um, I've had a bunch of them on the show. You know, Richie and uh, yeah. and uh, even Rusty Young, and you know the folks. Um, you know, it just it, it, there's a lot going on. Uh, you know, there and personalities and, and you know, everything else. I, it doesn't sound like you, you would have been uh, in conflict with anybody at that point. Uh, I wasn't, you know. I mean, I didn't even really know there were any issues. They were all very respectful um, um, of one another in front of me, and uh, I never saw any hassles or fights. Or I enjoyed working with Neil. Uh, originally, I thought Neil was the producer because when I first came in, he was the one there with the tapes, and we went through everything. He was very professional and methodic uh, and articulate. Um, Stephen was the next person I met, and I, I got the sense that he did not really have a sense of engineering or sound the way Neil did, but he did have a great sense of feel and time and a brilliant musician and brilliant songwriter, and I loved the sound of his voice. I mean, I can see how his talent really... Um, really made the Springfield, uh, you know, sort of gel. It was a catalyst, I think, for everybody. And uh, then, of course, Richie became a good pal. Um, he was the one who really needed the most help. He didn't really read music or write charts or um, he's a singer-songwriter. And uh, so he needed most of my efforts, you know, of hiring people to get charts and musicians. And Stephen pretty much had a good sense of who he wanted to play on his records. And and so did Neil, which then, uh, when that was all going on, I started. it dawned on me, why aren't these guys playing together? And I don't know why. To this day, I don't know why, because when they when they did, I mean, look at Bluebird, what a phenomenal, phenomenal feel and groove that is. And uh, yeah. a couple of other tunes that we did with, with them, I can't remember off the top of my head, it's been so many years, but when we did get them in the studio, there was some, some magic. But they were all... They were great to work with, and uh, um, I was sad to see that day come. Um, sad to know that there were issues that were unresolvable, but um, there were. Uh, but it was a great launching pad for for Richie and I then to go on and, and create uh, Poco, which we actually 
had started in the Buffalo Springfield on tour with um, with the Beach Boys. Uh, I had asked Kenny, I mean, excuse me, I had asked Richie if he uh, had any plans, what he wanted to do. He said he didn't know, and I said, you know, maybe we could think about doing a band, you know, together, you know, and you know, we've just gotten out of folk rock. Why don't we do something that's more country, more like your songs, uh, Child's Claim to Fame or Kind Woman, and, you know, more con- something maybe country rock, and you know, so well, let's see. And then uh, we'd already cut Kind Woman, but we hadn't put the steel guitar yet. And that's that's when Miles Thomas, who was um, uh, the Buffalo Springfield's uh, guitar tech at that point, or roadie we used to call him, um, suggested uh, Rusty Young, uh, who was living in Colorado, which is where he was from. So we brought him out, put him on, and uh, lo and behold, Richie and I, heard what he did and loved what he did, thought perhaps maybe this is who we need to create that opportunity of actually doing that country rock thing we talked about. So I think that was the birth of it right there. Buffalo Springfield, Rusty Young, overdubbing, um, really, really gave at least myself the insight that that could happen. Breaking it down with Frank McKay. This is 1039 LI News Radio. Let me remind people once again you're listening to the, the great, uh, wonderful Jim Messina and uh, thrilled to have him. Legendary career with Poco, uh, Buffalo Springfield, and of course Loggins and Messina and so much more. Jim Messina here with me, Frank McKay. And uh, Jim, getting, getting back to. Uh, I guess all of these names, and I'll include, you know, you and, and you know, you got to know Neil Young and, and of course, Richie Foray and, and Stephen uh, and all these people. Do you see any, and, you know, I'll, I'll throw Jimmy Webb in there as well. Do you see any common thread between these folks? Uh, these are all very creative guys at, at, a, at a time when creativity was appreciated. And, uh, and, and they all went on to uh they went on to great success i mean yourself and all of these people i do you do you notice any common trait is there an ambition there for for these folks was it just pure talent what do you what do you see as far as the common trait if anything well it's hard to articulate but i would say if there is a a common thread or a golden thread that that uh, exists, it would be more uh, of a resonating with with a time and a you know those of us who write um, there's a certain headspace you get, you have to get into in order to do that and um, there's a resonance that occurs you know a connection with the muse a connection with you know uh, with the moment a connection with time and space where all of a sudden, you know, the words, emotions pull together with feelings, feelings have thoughts or create images, and then what's generated is uh, the song. And what's resonated is the audience who experiences that in reverse. You know, they they hear the music, they, they see the images or the thoughts, they have a feeling, and then it connects with them emotionally. And 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 that way, that's a way of life, I think, for those of us who who have done it, um, and who continue to do it. Um, it. It's it's just something that we do. Like a carpenter picks up a saw and knows how to make a perfect right angle cut, or knows how to bevel the board just right, or uh, you know, an iron worker knows how hot to get the steel to pound it to shape it into something. It's 
part of who we are, probably who we always were, and eventually it just resonated like that. And it just so happened that at that time, you know, there was a label put on it, uh, rock and roll or country rock. Um, but I, I, I look back at the music that I've created in those times and subsequent to that, and even as I perform much of that stuff today, I think you get the common thread, you as the listener, get the common thread of the artist as you listen to the material. Because each of us, while we are similar in the sense that we write, sing, play, record, perform, uh, each of us at our age now, in our 70s, um, I think you'll note if you listen to the music, you'll see who we were, who we became, and who we are. And I think most of all, your interest, I would assume, or your listeners' interest, it resonate with, with that because, you know, we resonate with them. They see us, they hear our music, they hear our songs, they grew up with us, um, and hopefully they look to us for some of that uh, emotional um, uh, satisfaction. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a, as good as an answer as I... As I've heard out there, I'll remind people once again, Jim Messina, Frank McKay here with the uh, singer, songwriter, guitarist, um, producer. And, I, you know, I find it, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, amusing in a way that, uh, you know, you were, you were producing, you were engineering, and you were, uh, you know, the bass player in that band. And, I, you know, the, the hierarchy... It sounded like, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really your band. And I'm talking about Buffalo Springfield uh, because you came in after the fact. And it, Was it Richie's band or a combination of Richie and Steven? Uh, you know what? I, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to even have an idea of ownership because that kind of gets into an ego, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, how, how can you own a band? Uh, I mean, you can legally own it. You can be legally responsible for it. You can pay it debts or bills or file the, in, uh, the, the IRS uh, tax on it, but it, it's not about ownership. I, I think it's, it's about uh, interaction. I mean, in, in my mind, I thought it was an interesting combination of, of Richie, um, Neil, and Stephen in terms of their voices and, of course, the songs they put together. But let's not forget that Bruce Palmer... And uh, Dewey Martin created such an interesting groove in no that question. band yeah, no question. Uh, uh, that sort of was the foundation, and especially Bruce. He had a real wandering bass style, which I actually thought was really neat. I tried to incorporate some of that uh, in Stephen's stuff because I knew he liked that particular style more so, so than, say, a Joe Osborne, who was my my mentor. But um, whose band it was, I, you know, and. I don't know, and, and I'm not sure that I personally ever cared. All I wanted to see was them get the music done, get it out, honor their agreements, and and, uh, and perform in front of the audiences that love them. Well, let me ask you about a driving force then in Buffalo, uh, Springfield. Was there, and it sounded like uh, Neil Neil Young was uh, was going through uh, a lot of it, you know, professionally and going through, you know, a, a lot of the music himself. And I, I mean, were they all basically self-motivated and it just, uh, you know, you got a, um, you know, just a combination of, of motivated artists at that point? It's just, to me, it's very unusual to have that amount of talent 
and, and for you to come in as you know as as a replacement bass player and to have the career that you've had uh, something you know happened around there and I, and I think it's beyond just reputation of the band uh, you know something <laughs> kind of magical happened by all of you getting together I mean it's you you don't see that in all that many situations everybody you mentioned like you mentioned the the rhythm section there it's just it was tremendous but something something very strange and and wonderful happened with buffalo springfield and uh it's just uh, you know it's it's hard to um you know it's hard to put your finger on it but but something um came about with just a tremendous amount of talent just strangely enough in that uh, area. I mean, is it like attracts like? I mean, did talent attract talent? But something happened there. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, nothing just happens by happenstance or by, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just cosmic habit force or whatever it is. Well, I, I think if you take a close look uh, and go back to the beginning, you'll hear in the first album there was something going on there that was uh, beginning to take shape. Um, by the second album, the Buffalo Springfield, again, there was an emotionality to the rhythms and the feels and the chord structures and the modality and certainly the lyric uh, that was starting to resonate with people of the same age. Their music at the time was, was more sophisticated than most of the stuff, even though it was raw. I mean, Bluebird was a very, very sophisticated arrangement even though it was just a compressed acoustic guitar uh, and a drummer who was an old country bumpkin um, and a bass player who was jumping all over the place like a kangaroo it all bounced together and it worked and it it created an ambience uh, and an emotion um, that was that was attractive it was magnetic it was sympathetically vibrationally magnetic and it attracted people and I believe that that's about the time all of them well especially Stephen and, and Neil began to find themselves uh, and I think they found themselves in a in a spiral of, of an incredible amount of creative energy and, and material and I'm not so sure and it's a question you'd have to ask both of them, whether they felt at that point in time, either of them could really do justice to the other's material. I know when Kenny and I made that split, you know, I could see he was ready to move on uh, to do something else because he, you know, it was always supposed to be his 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 solo career, uh, and in order to make that happen, I needed to jump in to help him to get him started the kickstart to introduce him to my audiences to help him find attorneys and managers and agents and and a, most importantly a band and, and a direction you know at that time he was mostly doing folk music and he there was no way he was going to make it doing folk music because folk music was over <laughs> you know yeah. so i i think having been at the beginning of a number of creative successes as far as bands and what happens, getting back to your question, I think they may not have believed that they could have gone on together as a band, create the music that was starting to happen for them, 
uh, and be able to do it together. Now, we all know subsequent to that, they did get back with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young and made some great albums. But I say that because I don't really remember them performing together that much with the Buffalo Springfield in the studio. But yet, when they broke up, Neil calls me and asked me if I'd play bass on his album. So when I went in, you know, he had a band there. Uh, you know, he had a group that he was working with. I don't know who they were. And I was adding, you know, an overdub to that session. But I could tell he was excited about what he was doing. And, and I'm sure he wasn't getting any additional from anybody as to whether it was good, bad, or indifferent. He's just being an artist. And, and perhaps, and I'm saying perhaps, the similar was was for Stephen when he went to Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I have to tell you, I mean, when you look at that Woodstock film, and you you're there in the middle of the night, and you hear everybody rocking and playing and going off, it was Crosby, Stills, and Nash, just the three of them, playing acoustically that night when those voices sounded like a concerto. Yeah. It was so sophisticated and so... <laughs> it was it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, uh, and so when you hear that, and when you hear what Neil did, then you go back to the Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, it was there. Uh, it was trying to happen on the Springfield Again album. And uh, I tried to get as much as they were willing to do on the last time around album. But um, I don't know. You know, like I said, they never argued in front of me. Uh, they never said anything bad about one another. Uh, you know, Richie was kind of disappointed that he wasn't getting a lot of attention. But, you know, that can happen regardless of a, <laughs> whether you're in a band or getting enough, you know, apple pie. Um, but I, I just think they were so creative, and, and they were going through so much uh, creatively as songwriters at that time that it was probably best that they did separate and go their own ways. And as I said, they later came back together and did some wonderful things together when they were more calm and more uh, grown up and, you know, uh, and available to one another. Another reminder, you're hearing the voice of Jim Messina, Frank McKay here. Thrilled to have a legendary uh, career being talked about from the horse's mouth. Uh, you know his work, of course, from Loggins and Messina, Buffalo, Springfield, Poco, and so much, so much more. Frank McKay here with uh, Jim Messina. Uh, Jim, we haven't talked about touring at all, and uh, do you remember your, your first, I'm sure you remember it, but what do you recall about your first tour? Uh, with Springfield or? or... With, with anything. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it was a big part of, of all of this. Was This was all recording and, and writing. And, and Well, my first, my first big tour, really, with the band was um, with the... Uh, the Buffalo Springfield when we went out uh, as a opening act for the Beach Boys. Uh, and why I remember it so much was it was just filled with uh, just chaos because Martin Luther King was assassinated three days before we went out on the road, so a lot of dates were canceled. We were performing in the South. There was a lot of unrest. Um, we were long-haired, which was not, in those days, uh, a very good... Uh, thing to have. <laughs> uh, we got we got some real bad looks and bad comments. You know, just being normally outside of our situation. But 
we made the best of it. And uh, it was just, it was very disheartening uh, because there was a lot of people there to see us that wanted to see us. There were a lot of people that didn't come because of the danger of being out and about. And quite honestly, I, I have a feeling that that might have been the straw that broke the camel's back because I don't know that financially the band could afford to stay together much after that because you know, there just wasn't enough um, support in terms of sales uh, you know, to keep the income going or the interest. Yeah. I, I think the interest of, of them thinking, well, you know, they made a few records, they were pretty much in, in debt, and uh, so at what point do you you know, do you, do you, you know, you know, do you cut the line? And so could have been, I'm not saying it was, but I, I do believe it was a major factor as to why the group probably ended right after that. Cause that tour didn't really help us as it was supposed to have. You mentioned the, the beach boys. And again, another reminder, Jim Messina, if you're just tuning in, or turning on your radios for the first time, Frank McKay here with uh, Jim Messina of, of Buffalo Springfield and Loggins and Messina and and Poco fame. Uh, you mentioned the Beach Boys. Um, I, I don't know if Glenn Campbell was on that. I, I don't know if he, he toured with them uh, or if he just did a lot of uh, studio work with them, but I, I was going to ask you your impression of, of Brian Wilson and your impression of, of, uh, of Campbell if you met him on that tour. Well, first of all, uh, Brian was gone by then, okay. um, and uh, uh, Bruce Johnson had come in to take over that position. Glenn Campbell was not on the road with him at that time. Um, I met Glenn Campbell really in the studios as an engineer, uh, you know, around town with him doing dates, or um, later on, actually, when... Um, he he started his own television show and stuff. We had mutual friends, and at times, at, uh, at a you know New Year's Eve party, or of course with Jim Webb. You know Jim Webb and and uh, Glenn were very 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 close. But um, I always admired his work and his talent. Um, uh, he was whenever I saw him around him, he was always singing. You know, it's just kind of like Loggins just to be the same. He'd be always be singing, <laughs> which which is the sign of a vocalist. You know. <laughs> Uh, guitar players are noodling around on their guitar, and vocalists are noodling around in the back of their throat. So uh, I, I found that really interesting. And the fact that both of them had a very similar, similar tonal quality, an epiglottal that was very similar. Um, at any rate, uh, Glenn was, was great and, uh, and certainly had a wonderful career uh, with Jimmy Webb. Yeah. Just a, a great pairing there. Uh, the, the, uh, the Beach Boys, I mean, they were the headliner. Uh, to Buffalo Springfield, Sp uh, Springfield was, uh, you know, certainly had more than a cult following. They had a, a tremendous following at that point, but uh, still, you were the opening band to the Beach Boys. Did you did you get decent treatment from the Beach Boys uh, opening for them? Oh yeah, you know, no, they were they were great to us, and we made Bruce Johnson and I became pals. And over the years, we've talked about some of those fun times. But it was it was a the tour was actually. Uh, was very very complex. Uh, I think it was uh, Dick Durier was the was the road manager, and we used to do three shows a day. They'd have a they'd have a a matinee set up for two o'clock, then be like a six o'clock performance, and a 
nine o'clock performance and stages were moving all over the country. You know, you'd play one, they'd tear down, they'd go to the third show and then you'd fly to the the second and then we'd fly to the third. We had these uh, twin engine bike counts that uh, there are two or three for each band. I think the Strawberry Alarm Clock was yeah. on that show, uh, Buffalo Springfield and of course the Beach Boys. So. It was a lot of work, uh, very, very well organized um, for that period of time, and uh, they treated us very well. Let, let me, first of all, thank uh, Jim Messina for uh, for being here, and uh, thank all of you for listening, but i got about a minute left, Jim. Uh, do you have, a, you have a couple of dates? You said you're going to be in New York. Uh, give us the dates, if you could. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm going to be performing a run of dates there. Uh, myself, uh, I'm doing a co-headline bill with uh, Poco, my, one of my earlier groups, as you may recall. And um, so they'll do a show, I'll do a show. But uh, the first one is on uh, actually February the 21st. We'll be at the uh, Bergman Performing Arts Center, you know, uh, in Englewood, New Jersey. And then on the 22nd, we'll be at the Kirby Center for the Performing Arts uh, that's going to be in, actually in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And then we're back to, in the New York area. Terrytown Music Hall will be on the, the 23rd. Um, and then the uh, Infinity Music Hall in the Hartford, Connecticut. So, um, And that's on the 24th. So perhaps uh, your listeners will uh, be interested in the Terrytown Music Hall show that we're doing well, I, and i think uh, you know also uh, hartford uh, Penn, uh, the connecticut shows and the uh, yeah. you know all the new york shows uh jim messina just thank you very much and congratulations on a great career it's still going strong and, and good luck on everything you're working on thank you so much you guys have a, a great day and we'll see you at one of these shows thank you very much jim messina everyone has been our very special guest i want to thank all of you for tuning in frank mckay with jim messina of buffalo springfield poco and of course logins and messina uh, check out his shows in the area when you come into the air when he comes into the area please check him out frank mckay signing off we'll see you all next time on breaking it down